Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this opportunity to spend time worshiping You in song, in prayer, in giving, in studying Your Word, and in a little while, You'll give us opportunity to worship You while we fellowship together. We pray that you'd help us not to lose focus of the worshipful elements of each part of our time together. It's so easy for us to worship ourselves. Help us during these moments to yield ourselves fully to you, allowing your spirit to motivate and transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking about the mission of the church and then opposition to that mission. Satan opposes the work of God. And any time either there's a victory in our lives coming unto salvation or God is working in our lives and we're surrendering to the Lord or we're made more aware of the opposing work of Satan, you can be sure that Satan is more in tune and his forces of evil that do his bidding are also more attuned. And so as we consider these things, you can be sure that we'll have challenges. I don't know if you have been experiencing any additional challenges, but I believe anytime you're we are diving deeply into the things of the Lord and understanding Him and desiring Him and, and resting in Him, Satan would like nothing more than to cr- produce unrest within us, circumstantially, emotionally, and spiritually. There are repeated warnings and examples of the workings of Satan throughout Scripture. I want to just bring a number of these to your attention before we dive into our text. These will all be on the screen, screens beside me. Not every one of these is a direct reference to Satan. A number of them are references to those that follow after the workings of Satan. And so you have what Jesus says in John 10. You know in John 10 he's talking about the fact that he is the door. I am the door. And he also speaks about himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In John 10, while talking about his deity and his ministry to people, he writes, I spoke this, and John records for us, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. See, Jesus offers the the truly good life. And Satan wants nothing more than to distract us from that abundant life. Now, he doesn't necessarily distract people by making their lives a living hell. Sometimes he distracts them by making their lives what feels to them like a living heaven. And thereby extract from them a desire for what God has offered in true abundant life that will never be removed from them. 
temporary joys, temporary satisfaction, temporary salvations through people, place, places, and things instead of Jesus who eternally satisfies us. I have come to give life. You may have it, life, eternal life, and have it abundantly, but the thief comes and steals and kills and destroys, and we don't always recognize how he's doing that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaking of the man of sin, the Apostle Paul writes, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Counterfeits. Counterfeits. Satan does not need you, does not need me, to worship him. He does not need us to worship the kingdom of darkness, so to speak. He just cannot have us worshiping Jesus. You can worship a God of your choosing, a God of of your liking, a God of your heritage, a God of tradition, a God that even is spoken of in the Bible so long as you do not understand that Jesus Himself is God and is the Savior of the world. You could go to church every single week and Satan could be rubbing his hands together saying, oh yeah, I've got them just where I want them. They feel good about themselves. They feel like everything's fine. They've done their religious duty and they're all set. Satan's not disappointed with these things unless we are embracing Jesus Christ because only Jesus Christ can transform our hearts and our lives and give us entryway to heaven. We see Satan referred to here in 2 Corinthians 2.11 which says, so that We would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The word designs is schemes or devices. He he attacks us in various ways. And the Bible has given us so much information about him and again about truth that we should not find ourselves caught off guard by the kinds of attacks that come against us. Which is why we study God's Word individually and corporately. We study so that we first and foremost, know God and know of His salvation through Jesus Christ, worship and serve Him daily, surrender our hearts, minds, and wills to the Lord Jesus so that the Spirit might produce fruit in us. Yes, all of these things. And so that we see the counterattacks that come our way. So that we're not distracted as individuals or as the church into really good, fine things that don't accomplish kingdom work. It is good to feed the hungry. It is good to house the homeless. It is good to care for all manner of people's beings, whether it be teeth, health, well-being. All of these things are good. But if it doesn't drive at the greatest and deepest need, it's just another item. The church should be involved in caring for people's well-being, but not at the expense or instead of that which can save them eternally. You can go to your grave with a perfect set of teeth and a full belly 
and without any ravishing diseases. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your destiny is the same as if you had no teeth, an empty stomach, and horrible diseases. The end game. The end game. Satan's all about that. He's all about it. He's looking. He's looking down the road. And he continues to mount his attack against people and against God's church so that we are distracted by something fine, just not something gospel. Just not something gospel. We're not ignorant of his devices. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 3, he opposes us this way, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The way that that reads in the New King James Version is that he wants to um, lead us astray from a sincere and simple understanding of Christ. The simplicity that's found in Christ. He, he's very happy if, if you add to the Gospel. If you think that you have some, something to offer to God to make yourself well-pleasing to Him. Because as soon as I'm involved, as soon as it's about me, my efforts, my good works, grace is nullified. Here are the two options for those that are trying to gain eternal life. You can strive after it, or God can give it, and never the twain shall meet. It never, ever intersects. God grants salvation. I try to earn salvation, and this is what happens with anyone that tries to earn their salvation. They have to meet the righteous standard of Jesus Christ. Well, that's kind of a bummer because you will never make it unless God grants that righteousness to you. This is why we look at our sin, we see our sin, and we recognize this will never satisfy me and it will never gain me eternal salvation. And so we have to turn from our sin and turn toward Christ, the Savior, who forgives our sin, grants us eternal life, and gives us satisfaction. That's what turning and believing. Repent and believe. That's the whole process. That's a gift. That's a gift from God to someone like me. Satan wants to distort the simplicity that is found in Christ. Moving a little further, you'll remember this in, in the Lord Jesus' interactions with Simon Peter. He says in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. In other words, try to separate you from your faith. To separate you. To, 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 to take you and rip, rip anything that's devoted toward God and Christ away from you so that you'll find some other thing to trust in. Remember what Jesus said in the next verse? But I've prayed for you. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Satan opposes, Jesus sustains. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at what it says on the screens, verses 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant, this is an incredible passage, 
the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare, the trap, the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That, that is, what a powerful text. Now, the, the concept there that, that Paul is driving at is for the man or woman of God that is, that is serving. And particularly, he's talking about a man of God who is a, in, uh, an apostolic representative. He's pastoring a church in Ephesus. And he says, you, in the way that you present the gospel, demonstrate gentleness, kindness, and love, opposing error, but opposing it the right way, not foaming at the mouth, uh, not angry, but demonstrating that you're controlled by the Spirit. And God, not you, not your countenance, not your way, not your method, not your manner. God may grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. God may shake them out of their uh, doldrums. He may allow them to escape the snare, the trappings of the devil. That's the, the main idea. But that last line adds a little color after being captured by Him to do His will. How many applications can you make of that? You look around the world and you just wonder what in the world is going on. The logic has left the building. But it's Satan. It's satanic. The world, the flesh, and the devil oppose the will and the way of God. And then this very familiar one in 1 Peter 5, and verse 8, where God says through Peter, to the church, be sober, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone, someone to devour. Might he be interested in devouring you? Well, remember this. He's only at one place at one time. He is not God. He's not everywhere present. So maybe we're not really high on his list. But one of his minions might be. Now, when we think of minions, we're not, we're not talking about those yellow things. <laughs> and I'm not even talking about the purple ones that go crazy. I'm talking about like actual demonic beings seeking to counter the will of God in the church, in an individual's life. Satan and his work are lined up toward the church. The church is a bigger fish to fry than any individual, right? However, many times to get to the church, he has to deal with individuals. And so he and his minions are at work trying to oppose God's will and God's work in our lives. This is enough to give us a clear warning of Satan's evil intentions. He is, he is devious, subtle, hateful. He is not for you, but against you because he hates God and he is against God. We've been looking through 
the book of Ephesians, looking for God's mission for the church and whatever God intends for His church. Satan is trying uh, hard. He's hard at work trying to undermine or distort this. And so we've talked about a number of items and we're just going to briefly mention them. The church must walk together in unity. What must walk together in unity. He counters that in many ways, but we're just going to summarize it with he counters that with individuality. The church is about me. And as soon as church becomes about you, the unity goes out the door as well. Secondly, the church must know and demonstrate God's love. Satan counters that with self-love or distorted love. Love that is not biblically oriented and spirit-wrought, but instead something that is akin to or like the love that God describes. But anything that's like it and not it itself is a facsimile. It's a false love. It's a distorted love, and then many times it is a self-love that is at the heart of it. Thirdly, the church must testify of God's greatness. Satan counters that in many ways, focusing on the greatness of what God has made instead of God Himself. And in the church setting, he counters it many ways by focusing on preferences over the object of worship. Next, the church must remain true to the Gospel. The Gospel is the heart of what we do together. The Gospel is at the heart of of why we're here. The Gospel is what makes this church and other churches like us, we're not alone, makes us different from churchianity. Going to church to be better people, it's not a bad thing, but going to church to be a better person is not why we come. We're to go to church first to worship God, and that worship of God only happens from a redeemed life, and it is only strengthened as that redemption is clear more and more clearly seen. That's sanctification. God is sanctifying us through the gospel. As we exalt Him, our view of self changes. Our tastes change because I'm no longer trying to feed myself, do what I like. My my likes change when I am focused on Christ. And the Gospel does this. Satan counters the Gospel by saying it's too narrow. What about all these people? What about this person? What about this scenario? What about this abstract uh, illustration? What about this? What about that? It's too narrow. It doesn't include enough people. The Bible clearly dismantles that argument. Read the book of Revelation. Chapter 5 is a very good place to start with that particular dismantling of that argument. But also, it's too simple. There's got to be more. What do you mean? You mean a murderer can go to heaven? Don't they deserve hell? Yep. So do I. But haven't you, you know, haven't you done good things for people? Yep. Not going to get me to heaven. Haven't you dedicated your life to serving God and people? Yep. Not going to get me to heaven. It's too simple. No, it's not too simple. We complicate things because we think we know better. God has declared what the gospel is. I'm a sinner. My sin deserves hell, judgment, eternal separation from God. God, in His grace, 
mercy, and love sent His Son Jesus to bear my sin debt. To stand in my place. To be judged for my sin. To be condemned for my sin. To pay my sin debt. God raised Him from the dead victorious over my sin. Victorious over the sin of all of God's people. God raised Him from the dead as a first fruit, first sampling of all those who would come to be God's children and live forever in His presence. He's the first fruits of those who slept in Christ. The Gospel's too simple. Number five, and where we pick up in our, our study, the church has been called to build itself up. The church has been called to build itself up. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 7. We'll read from 7 to 16. And I want to focus our attention on the last half of that. But notice in this, God is giving something. God is giving something. His grace comes our way. And of course, His grace comes through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Spirit that we've been given. So verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us. How many of us receive this grace? Every believer. Because that's who's receiving the letter. So every believer receives this grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower regions the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And He gave, as part of these gifts, He gave the apostles and the prophets. What did they do? They were the penmen, the proclaimers of the Gospel. The proclaimers of the the New Testament. God used their writing to, to form the foundation of the church. God gave apostles and prophets. And the evangelists He gave. What do evangelists do? They tell people about what? Him. They tell them about Jesus, right? They give the good news, the Gospel. They bring, bring people the Gospel and God saves people from darkness and places them into light and takes them out of the world and places them into the church. And so we have the church being filled. And then it says in verse 11, the, and, and He's given the shepherds and teachers. What do these shepherds and teachers do? Well, verse 12 answers that. To equip the saints. Well, What are they equipped for? For the work of the ministry. Who does the work of the ministry? Every believer. It's not the super saint. It's not the paid professionals. It's not the seminary trained. It's every believer is to do the work of the ministry. What is the result of this? For the building up. For building up the body of Christ. How long should we do this? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Well, what is mature manhood? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the church is to be teaching, and people are to be being equipped, and people are to be fulfilling the task of ministry. So the church is built up, and this task is to be going on until we're exactly like Jesus. Have we arrived Not yet. So that means the work is great. 
and yet we can get so distracted by things out there. I mean, I've got these agendas, these plans. I'm going to do this good pursuit and that good pursuit and this other good pursuit. And it doesn't drive toward the maturing of the church. <coughs> Satan is trying to get our minds on something else than the maturing of the church. We become very busy with all manner of things, some good, but sometimes it, sh- it, it derails us from doing that which is the best. Verse 14, so that, we know, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the winds and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love or truthing it in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Where We as a group, as a church, are to be growing up into Christ. Growing up into the, the fullness of the, 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 the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right? That's the, the concept in verse 13. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. How many parts? Each part. Are you a believer? Are you one of the each parts? That means God has called you to serve Him. What's the context of this service? The church. Oh, but I do this and this in the community. I do this and that in the community. I do this and this and other thing. Okay, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless you do that instead of serving God in the church He's called you to be a part of. What is the result of each part doing its share or working properly? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It makes the body grow. So the body, the people that are redeemed, are used by God to intimately work together for the increase growth of the body itself. And so God's at work through people like us. Each part working. What does Satan do to counter all of this? He wants us to disregard or minimize the church. There are so many ways that Satan minimizes the church. One of them is very natural. Looking at the church for what I can get from it. Well, I go to this church and they do this for me. And I go to this church and they do this for me. And I go to that church and they do that for me. It's, just, it's like a little smorgasbord I keep getting everywhere I go. Okay. Not sure I see that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, instead of saying it that way, the Scripture does not speak that way. The Scripture does not speak that way. What can I get from the church? Secondly, um, he wants us to forget about the people of the church unless they're right in front of our face. So we all have our heads hung low. Because there are times we forget about one another. Right? Anyone, anyone not ever forget about anyone? Raise your hand. I'm very glad you're being honest. Because all of us have forgotten about someone. This is one of the ways that Satan would have us minimize the church by, oh, I see them. I see them. I'm thinking about them right now, and then I go away, and I've got all these other problems. So it's very natural for us to forget. But this is one of the ways that we minimize the church is by forgetting about the people that are the church. Next, uh, 
You've heard this one. I don't need to be a part of a church. I am the church. Good luck with that one. Well, I, I get together with people at coffee shops, and where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. Uh, that's not really what that's about, just so you know. Good try. I understand your, your sentiment, but God has called you to be part of a church, not be the church. You know, it's a very, it's a very cute little thing that uh, people have come up with these days. Don't go to church, be the church. Listen, do you have any choice? Like, if you're a believer, do you have any choice but to be a member of the body of Christ? No. Like, it's not like you can say, today I'm going to be the church. It, does, it doesn't work. Like, God has called you out of darkness and placed you into the church. Okay, so that's the universal church. Yes, every believer is part of that universal church. But none of them stand alone as the church. In fact, the coffee shop church is not church. Unless a, a church says, hey, we're going to have a Bible study at the, at the coffee shop, and we're going to do this, and you gather there, that's fine. There's no problem. You can meet anywhere and, and serve God together. The, the venue is not the issue. But not like this random, hey, I'm going to call Sally, Sue, Mary, and, 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 uh, and some other lady's name, and we're going to get together, and we're going to have a church service. This doesn't work that way. But Satan has duped people into thinking that way. The real work in society is done by fill in the blank. This is Satan's deception. The real work in society is done by the Red Cross. This thing, that thing. What, what is really, really church work about? It's about the magnification of God, the glorification of God. It's about the worship of God. It's about the magnification of Christ. It's about the understanding of the gospel. It's about the application and demonstration of the gospel. <laughs> organizations aren't doing that. There might be some organizations that are gospel-oriented and gospel-proclaiming. But like, the work of God starts in and among the church. And then the church goes forth with the gospel. That's the way it works. So Satan counters... Satan counters the church's mission to build itself up with these ways and many others. Yet God has a different view of the church. Think of it this way. The church belongs to God. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ purchased the church with His own blood. God's wisdom is on display in the church. God's gospel is on display through the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The organizations are not these things. The church is the bride of Christ. So Satan tries to minimize and disregard the church or have us disregard and minimize the church. And God has really magnified the church as where he's at work and how he wants to work in the world. You see the difference? Are we awake? Think about this. Here we are, studying through the book of Ephesians, looking at the mission of the church and Satan's countering it. What do you think the satanic host wants you to be thinking about right now? Lunch. <laughs> the beach. What you're going to do tomorrow on your day off. And some of you may in fact have been thinking in one of those areas. And what, what are we here for? To worship God. 
to hear from him, to worship him in the word, and to see the attack that Satan has against God's people. The next item for our discussion, and it is the the last main point of our gathering, the church has been called to live in a new, productive way. The church has been called to live in a new, productive way. Look what it says, beginning in verse 17. We're in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The word futility means devoid of the truth, devoid of appropriateness, or filled with emptiness. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. That has the idea of clouded judgment. goes on and says, alienated, alienated from the life of God living without an understanding that we live our lives in the presence of God. Chapter 2 already told us that those that are in the flesh, those that are Gentiles, those that have not embraced Christ, they're living without God in the world. Yet Jesus' blood was shed to draw us near. Alienated, it says, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They're without knowledge. They're not without knowledge in everything. There are lots of smart people with lots of really good information. When he's talking about ignorant in their knowledge, he's talking about those things that are sacred and eternal, not any knowledge whatsoever, just ignorant with regard to that which is sacred. And eternal, he goes on and says, uh, due to their hardness of heart. They're callous. Callous in their heart. It's, it's an interesting word. Hebrews 3 talks about that callousness. It says that hardness of heart results from the deceptiveness, deceitfulness of sin. And the whole context of Hebrews chapter 3, what brings us to that deceptiveness of sin that produces a hard heart is unbelief. Unbelief in the things that God has communicated. Unbelief in the things that God has revealed. Hardness of heart. So he's, he's warning us in these first few verses of this section that, that we can't walk like we used to walk. We can't walk as if we're not in God's presence. We can't walk as those that are empty in their pursuits. We can't walk as those who have clouded judgment. We can't walk as if God doesn't exist. We can't walk without the information, the, the, the truth that God has revealed, the ignorance that is in them. We can't walk hardened in our heart, being deceived by sin. And then in verse 19, he just lists these things. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's a very interesting set of of descriptions. He says that they have become callous. That means they have no senses. Right? Isn't that what callous means? You're using, using a shovel, right? And you're digging. And you're digging. Well, you get the blister. Oh, man, I haven't been using my hands very much. Well, let's say you, you have a new job and you've been digging a lot. And now the blisters are turning hard. And the skin is turning hard. And you're, you're, shovel, you're shoveling. And now, now you can't feel it anymore. Your hands have become almost immune from it because you've built up calluses. You can't feel it. 
In that sense, it's really good. So what he's saying is, they have become callous. They can't feel. They're unfeeling. And then it says, and have given themselves up to sensuality. Well, sensuality is feeling. You know that? Sensuality. The, 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 the base of sensuality is senses. They do what feels good. They do what seems good. But they've given themselves over to sensuality having already become callous. Well, what are they callous to? They're callous to the things of God and callous to the things of, of truth. And they can still feel. They're just not feeling the right things. They're feeling the wrong things. This is, this is what's characteristic of, of unbelief. And it says greedy to practice. It doesn't just say greedy to practice sin. It doesn't even just say greedy to practice impurity. It doesn't even say greedy to practice lots and lots of kinds of impurity. It's like greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy to practice every kind. Well, I don't think that in their minds they're thinking, well, what other impurity can I get myself involved in? It's more like this. You pursue down a hole, and that doesn't satisfy anymore. So you just pursue down another hole. Pretty good. Then it doesn't satisfy anymore. And then another one. And then another one. Because after a while, that thing doesn't satisfy anymore. It's temporary Satisfaction. This is what Moses, why Moses made a great decision. God was influencing Moses' life. God was granting Moses real faith in the sense that instead of practicing those things that were great that he would have enjoyed, he realized that those are passing pleasures of sin. Passing pleasures of sin. But people don't always know that because they don't know God. And so they're, they're, they're bound up in all various manners of things, trying to feel good. And this one runs dry. So they go to another one. Well, this woman's no good for me anymore. I don't like her anymore. She doesn't satisfy me anymore. I'm going to find another one. This guy's a bum. He used to really be nice. He used to bring me flowers and chocolates. Now he just sits there like a, like a bump on a log. I'm going to find a different one. It's the way it goes. If we find our pleasure in people, places, and things, we will find our pleasure is not always, our our pleasure tank isn't always full. Right? Because things break. People sometimes change. Sometimes they leave. And sometimes you find out they weren't what you thought they were. People, places, and things. Doesn't, it doesn't, will never satisfy. And that's what's so great about knowing Jesus. The Bible says he's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He will always satisfy. John chapter 4, John chapter 7, you look, at, look through John chapter 6, you look at Jesus' commentary throughout the, the Gospel of John as John is recording it, you, you see, Jesus is letting you know, I will satisfy you eternally. But that seems, seems like not good enough. So this is what he's warning us against. Verses 17 through 19, he's warning us against walking like we used to walk and walking like those that don't know God, how they walk, because they're not going to be fulfilled. So he goes on in verses 20 and following and gives some instructions. 
But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, or in other versions, is growing corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So he gives us some instructions. He counters what what the old way of life is and what the world is experiencing and unsatisfied with. And he says, this is not what you've learned as you've come to Christ. You've learned that He has given you new life and new joys. And and those joys have exceeded any of those old joys. Is that true for you? Like, think back of the things that used to bring you pleasure. And think of the joy you have received in Christ. Is there any comparison? There isn't. It's not even close. Even when we, on on a particular day... You know, as believers, and we, we dive into the wrong thing. Like, we're, we're driving down the street, someone flips us off, and we get angry, and we, uh, you wouldn't do this, and I actually don't do this. You chase them down with your car, you're, oh, I want to beep at you, beep, 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 ah, and, and you're all angry. You think, this is going to make me feel good because they were a turd, and so I'm going to be a turd back to them. And after, like, you finally settle down after a few minutes, you're like, How dumb was that? That didn't really satisfy so much. I thought it was a great idea at the time. Looking back, what a fool I am. Like We experience these things in various ways, right? Then we realize it doesn't give me the pleasure that I'm looking for. It doesn't give me the satisfaction that I'm looking for. Nothing satisfies like the Lord Jesus. So he tells us, "Here's, here's what you need to do recognize your old way will never satisfy and that God has provided you the new way in Christ, wash yourselves in that thinking over and over. That's essentially what he says in 22, 23, 24. Put off the old manner because it's going in the wrong direction. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Think rightly. I've given you what you need. And put on Christ. He will satisfy you and He will demonstrate truth in you. Your life will be completely new. Remember, this section, verses 17 and following, is about the new pattern of our lives. He gives us some examples of how this changes. This newness comes. In verse 25, it's putting away falsehood and telling the truth. So instead of lying to cover my backside, I'm telling the truth to benefit those that I'm speaking to. Verses 26 and 27 has to do with anger, right? Don't sin while being angry. I don't know how many times in my life I could ever feel good about anger. In fact, I don't think I even ever feel good about it. Ever. I think me, I know me, and my sinfulness and my wickedness, I'm never going to feel good about anger. There must be a way, because God says it, to be angry without sinning. I know Jesus demonstrated it in the, in the temple. I am not going to try to follow that example because I am not deity. This is me. You might feel good about yourself getting angry about some righteous thing. I think I'm going to just try to, by God's grace, remain calm. The new way is not anger. It's something else. Verses 26 and 27. The new way in verse 28 is not stealing for myself, but laboring hard so I can 
give. In verse 29, it's not speaking with corrupt communication because, because I, um, I'll feel better on myself as I make everyone around me worse for my existence. But instead, the new way is to speak so as to enrich their lives. To speak not just so they'll be happy that I exist, but so that when I speak, they're better off for my having spoken. The new way. You get to the end of the chapter, verses 31 and 32. Instead of allowing bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander to characterize us with malice, in verse 32, be kind. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think we can easily say that God has called His people to think, speak, and act in a different way from our past. And Satan's desire is to drag us back into bondage. Satan's way is to drag us back into bondage. He has at least two lines of attack in this, and we we probably can't, can't dive into this as much as I had intended. Um, but I want you to think through these two items. There are probably more, more lines of attack he can use, but these are the two that stand out to me. He appeals to our desires. He appeals to our desires. In chapter 4 and verse 22, the same book we're in, Ephesians, to put off your old self, to put to death your old self, to, to throw your old self away <laughs> because it belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful what? What is it? Well, Satan's very happy for us to get what we want because what we want is always different from what God wants. When we want in and of ourselves, of our own old man, is always going to be different than what God desires. You've seen it in the whole biblical record from Genesis 1-1 on. Man, left to their own devices, is adverse toward God and his way. And that's true about me. When I am not surrendered to the Spirit, when I am not surrendered to God, I am against the things of God. That has not changed. It hasn't changed in you either, whether you know it or not. You can fool yourself all you, all you want to say, I'm a new person, everything's new about me, I'm, I'm really, I, I don't, all the old things that I ever wanted, I don't want them anymore. Okay, in, in Christ, yes, I agree. In truth, like, like devoid of the spirits controlling you at a, at a particular moment, you, you are in big trouble if you depend on you. Desires. In Proverbs 5.22, we don't have time to turn there, talks about people being bound in the cords of their sin. That's not just for unbelievers, folks. In Proverbs 1, he talks about a similar concept about the foolishness of, of our complacent spirit. So he appeals to our desires. Secondly, he appeals to our self-will. We are going to turn to this one. Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16, he's talking to the church, like us. He's talking to the Colossian church, like he talks to the Ephesian church. And he wants to warn them about living the Christian life 
through Christ. As opposed to living the Christian life motivated and moved by our own self-will. Listen to how he says this. Verse 16 and following. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He's talking about religious things. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That means you know, being harsh on yourself. And worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So don't let someone get you to think about something that will make you better unless the one that they're pointing you to is Jesus. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, that is a technical term in that time for spirit-led, spiritual, now spirit, I use the word, spirit, not capitalized S, demonic spirit-led, spiritual-type activities. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Like thinking that not handling something, not tasting something, not touching something will make you better. It refers, verse 22, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. Listen carefully to verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is a hard thing to grapple with for someone that does, God has not already taught this. Okay, If God has taught many of us the truthfulness of what's going on here. But it's hard to grapple with this if you're not understanding it already. It feels good to follow rules. It feels good to check things off a checklist. I'm following God. Look, I read my Bible. I prayed. I went to church. I serve in the choir. I serve in this. I do this. It feels good. I I can feel, look, my life was like this that many years ago, and now look at me. Look at how far I've come. I do all these things. And if I am resting in the activity of what I do, who is my God? Right here. It's me. Self-made religion. It will not stop me from thirsting after the indulgences that are inside of me. I just changed the clothing. I used to thirst after this, this, and this. Now it's spiritual things. It's so dangerous because it's, I'm not telling you not to read your Bible. Like, would I ever tell you not to read your Bible? I need a, a universal answer on this. Would I ever tell you not to read your Bible? No. Would I ever tell you not to pray? No. Would I ever tell you not to go to church? No. Would I ever tell you not to serve God? No. Okay. So everyone's clear on this, right? Because I've had some people come to me after saying some of these things be like, well, are you telling me it's bad to read my Bible? Come on, please. 
Maybe I didn't say it quite right. (laughs) So I'm not saying any of those activities are not essential for the Christian life. But if you're resting on that formulaic Christianity to make you a better Christian, I'm telling you, it's not going to work. God is more merciful at seeing these things and more gracious in seeing these things than I am, okay? So I have to do with what God has done. God has used formulaic Christianity to, to help some people, okay? Because if they're in the Word and they're in church, God teaches, right? So I'm, I don't want to be graceless in my conveying of it. But what I do want to do is what Paul has done here is, is to warn us. Satan would like nothing more than for you to feel good about your activities. I'm a really good Christian. I don't know about you. I'm just being honest here. Too often I feel like a horrible Christian. I see all of the... the Warped brain that I have. I see I'm irritated with one of my children, or I get irritated with something that goes on in my life. I'm like, what's the matter with you, buddy? Don't you know? Yes, I know. Then what's the matter with you? I feel like a putrid Christian sometimes. And yet, God in his grace and his mercy is still working in me. And that's when you know it's about him and not about you. Not that we ever accept our sinfulness and feel good about our repulsiveness. Feel good about our bad attitude. None of that. Satan wants us to get trapped in that spot of feeling terrible. And God wants us to to be there so that we can repent. A godly sorrow that turn leads to repentance. And that repentance is a renewed surrender of our heart to God. God has told us that this battle against our flesh would be difficult. Galatians 5.17 is a great example. Romans 6 and 7 and 8 are excellent examples of this. As we see our inability and sinfulness exposed. And we are reminded of God's mercy to forgive and of God's grace to empower. We can be released from the bondage that Satan would like to characterize our lives. As we submit to God, God strips us of self-reliance and enables us to have joy and peace and love in him. This results in the new patterns that are called for in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Satan tries to counter this. He tries to counter it. He wants us to find a way to do what the Bible says differently than the Bible says it, or just to disregard it altogether. Satan counters all of these things Next week and the week after, what we want to do is to look at chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and to realize that God has given us everything that we need to fend off Satan's assault against us. All of the attacks by Satan are against the will and work of God. 
and they are all attempts at stopping the gospel. See, the gospel is the only pathway to free us from ourselves. The gospel counters our sensuality. It counters our ignorance. It counters our self-will. And it counters our being alienated from the life of God. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news. It always starts with understanding our complete inability, our complete inability to meet the standard of righteousness necessary for acceptance with God. When we see our desperate condition and our hopelessness, we are ready to understand the completeness of the salvation offered to us by God through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He paid for my sin. That means that God judged him guilty for my sin. He was buried, and he truly was put to death in the flesh. And then he rose. And that resurrection was an indication of the satisfaction and the completeness of that sacrifice. Listen carefully. All who see their sin, who turn from their sin, and turn toward Jesus Christ, calling upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him, has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This pattern of depending on God's rescuing us from our sin continues every single day day of the Christian life. Every day I need to turn to my Savior. Not for salvation, for rescue. I know it's slightly different. Once we trust Christ as our Savior, that salvation endures forever. I'll never fear condemnation. But every single day I still turn to him for rescue from me. Turn to him for rescue from my sin. Every single day. Every day he can give me victory over my sin. Satan wants me to forget this. He wants me to find another way, sensual or religious. Jesus, on the other hand, teaches us through the Bible that he will hold us fast, that he will save us. He is the confidence that we have. Let's pray together. Father, minister your grace in our lives. Help us that we would not rely upon ourselves, but to rely upon you through Christ, knowing that your way is right, that the gospel is enough. Change us for your glory, that we might testify in life through our thoughts, words, and deeds, that the gospel changes us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.